0: and so here we are looking back on ecuador welcome to another look into the life and message of elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day not to be satisfied with just throwing a little religion into our lives as a shallow substitute for giving god our best as this podcast series continues in the coming weeks we'll hear from family friends and others who are influenced by elizabeth's life and message Today we conclude, that's right, we conclude our extended series about Jim Elliot and Operation Alca and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. At the end today, I'll tell you more about what's coming next, but first we have two more Gateway to Joy programs to wrap up this extended look, looking back on Ecuador. Writing an unwritten language, and then Gateway to Joy 132, Reflections on Life in Ecuador. Today we hear from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, as she remembers going back to Ecuador at age 11. And we'll also hear from a memorial service from 1956. What did they have to say just days after the death of the missionaries? That's later today. Right now, let's begin with Gateway to Joy 131 writing an unwritten language. You know, there are thousands of unwritten languages in the world. The Alcus thought everyone could speak, or soon would speak, their language. So why was this woman, this adult, unable to speak the language? She must be, they figured, less than smart.
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about writing an unwritten language. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the fact that there are thousands of unwritten languages in the world. They've never had any form of writing whatsoever. And there are hundreds of missionaries working on the reduction to writing of those languages. It was in order to do that kind of work that I became a missionary. Back in 1952, I had taken special training at the University of Oklahoma in linguistics and learned things like how to recognize a nasalized vowel or a voiced consonant. We don't think much about nasalized vowels in English because we have them only contiguous to nasalized consonants. We have two nasalized consonants in English, M and N, and normally the vowels which are next to those in a word receive a certain amount of nasalization. But when I was studying the AUCA language of the eastern jungle of Ecuador, I noticed very quickly that there were a good many nasalized vowels. For example, the root of the vowel to speak is ha, a nasalized a. The same letter is the root of the verb to see, but it's not nasalized. Ah, ah as opposed to un. Can you hear the difference? And yet a foreigner who's not trained to hear those things and to recognize their importance might pronounce them both the same and then say, oh, well, what's the difference? I only forgot to nasalize one vowel. So you have to become alert to things like that and realize that the tiniest distinction may be of enormous importance in speaking the language correctly. I've told you how I used to wander around with my notebook and my pen, trying to write down what I heard the Indians say. This is anything but easy, especially when the people don't realize that you really don't understand the language. Since the Alkas had never heard another language spoken, were so isolated that most of them had literally never seen a stranger, they had no concept of different languages. They took it for granted that all human beings are born with the ability to speak Alka, or at least very quickly to learn to speak Alka, and to see me as an adult, apparently normal woman, unable either to hear or to reproduce accurately what they were saying, convinced them that I must be retarded or at least very strange. And I was always going around with this notebook. I had a tape recorder, and whenever I could, I would try to record their conversations. Sometimes the descriptions of the hunt, which the men would give when they would come back in the evening and sit around the fire while the women were cooking whatever they had brought back, they would all be giving their accounts of the hunt. It wasn't the most ideal situation for recording, because they usually talked simultaneously. So my best bet was to try to get one of the children to come to my house because the children had much more patience than the adults, and they would sit there and just talk, tell me about what they were doing or where their father had been or what their mother was doing or what animals or birds they had seen, and I would record it. And then I would get the child to sit there while I would play back maybe one or two syllables. Then I would say to the child, turning off the tape recorder, I would turn to the child and say, What did the machine say? And then the child would give me those two or three syllables. And I could see the position of the teeth and the tongue and the lips and record the sounds accurately from having heard it two or three times on the tape recorder. One reason why I had to get the tape recorder to do the repeating was that the people would not repeat exactly what they had said. If I said, What did you say? Sometimes they would give me a whole paragraph of explanation, which did not include the word that I was trying to get down. If I were to say to you, How much do you think you would get down on paper, on the first run through? Well, of course, I could repeat it exactly the same way again, but the Aukas wouldn't have done that. But even if I repeat it for you the second time, How much would you get down that time? Well, I'm just giving you some examples of what we were up against. Rachel Saint was also there. She was trained by the Summer Institute of Linguistics, as I was. We had exactly the same kind of training. And so we would try to put our heads together occasionally and work things out together. But it really wasn't all that easy. The word for understand was exactly the same as the word for hear. So when the Indians had said a phrase for me, then very often they would say, me? meaning, did you hear me? Do you understand? And usually my answer had to be, you know do which means, I didn't understand a syllable. Try it again. And they would laugh and they would examine my ears and say, what's the matter with your ears? Haven't you got holes in them? or Are you deaf? Are you stupid? And I would have to spend hours filing suffixes. There were a good many suffixes on Alka words. Then maybe you've never stopped to think about the difficulties that we give to foreigners who are trying to learn English by the many truncations in our language. We shorten things down. For example, somebody comes along and says to a friend, "Gee Chet." Now most of us could understand that that means, "Did you eat yet?" but it gets shortened to jichet. So if the poor foreigner was standing there with his pen and paper trying to write down what the American had said, he would put down jichet. It would take him a very long time to file those two syllables before he discovered that it really was did you eat yet four syllables. And Valerie, my daughter, put me absolutely to shame in the learning of language because she was only three years old. So it was a whole lot easier for her. One of the earliest phrases that she learned was ha, come," which means everybody listen to this. When her poor mother was desperately trying to hear and reproduce this impossible language, she could talk circles around me. And so she would be calling to everybody in the clearing, come and listen to this, as I struggled long. In my second year, I really had gotten to the point where I could make myself understood, and I could usually understand most of what was said to me. So Rachel and I began preparing primers so that the Alcas themselves could learn to read what we were trying to write down. There are four things that have to go on more or less simultaneously. You're trying to learn the language, you're writing it down, you must translate something into the language for them to read, and you must teach people to read. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense to write a language down if you're the only one that can read it. So the people need to be taught to read. It doesn't make any sense to teach people to read if they don't have something to read. So you have to do the translating. So that was our job. When I got to the point where I could ask questions, I asked some very pressing questions that had been puzzling me for a very long time. I wanted to know about how they killed my husband and why. I got two tapes from two of the men that did the killing. Kikita and Minkayi. It was amazing how their detailed accounts matched almost exactly. It was not pre-planned. They had a great ambivalence about whether these five missionaries were really cannibals, really treacherous, really wanting to kill them, or whether they were good people. And it was sort of a last-minute decision to kill them. Were they killed quickly? No. I learned the answer to that question. It was a long fight. Well, I wanted to ask the question about the costume that the algas wore, this piece of string around their hips. If they wanted to be very dressed up, sometimes they wore a piece of string around their upper arm or around their thigh. But I said, why do you wear the string? Well, they said, would you expect us to go around naked? Dayuma was a young Alka woman who had been out of the tribe for a number of years. She had become a Christian, so she was sort of our mouthpiece. She began to teach them the Bible. And as we began to get across the very rudimentary principles of the gospel, we realized that we ourselves were also the message. Communication is what we're there for. And the Alkas were very eager to believe anything we told them and to conform immediately. Dayuma told the people that they ought ought to pray, and so they all wanted to pray. She taught them about baptism. They all wanted to be baptized. She wore clothing. We wore clothing. They wanted to conform to that. We knew, of course, that the adequacy of the medium does not guarantee satisfactory results of the message. Jesus himself was the personal expression of God. He came into his own creation, and his own people would not accept him. And yet he was faithful in the telling. He expressed perfectly and completely the person of his Father, and those who accepted his witness were given power to become sons of God. You and I have been given that word. We have believed it. We are responsible to see that it is faithfully communicated, visibly, and verbally. How far from perfect we are in the telling. We are not by any means always the visible expression of God. But the writer of the letter to the Corinthians said this. You are an open letter about Christ, delivered by us and written, not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God, engraved not on stone but on human hearts. The letter of the law leads to the death of the soul. The spirit alone can give it life. That's what we prayed for, that the spirit of God would take these words that we were writing down and translating and make them live.
0: Gateway to Joy 131, writing an unwritten language. Later on, we'll have Gateway to Joy 132, the last in this series on her time in Ecuador appropriately called Reflections on Life in Ecuador. First, though, we hear from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, as she talks about going back to Ecuador
2: when she was 11. I did miss my friends. Probably the hardest thing was when we went back to Ecuador when I was the age of 11. We went from Marge Saint's wedding to Abe Vanderpoort. She got married in Quito, Ecuador. And so we went to see the Indians that we had lived with just three years before the Quichuas. And then we went to see the Alcas too, the Wajorani. And I was so sad because I'd completely forgotten the language, even though my mother had tried very hard to help me keep speaking it. She certainly did remember it in 1996, when we went down to Ecuador and saw the Wajorani and the Quichuas, many of the same ones that we had lived with. So she was amazing with her with her understanding of languages and perfect imitation, too.
0: Valerie Elliot Shepard. Well, it's time to hear some reflections on life in Ecuador. Gateway to Joy 132. Why did uh, Elizabeth leave the Alcas? Well, there are a number of reasons, and you'll hear about that. And our question for today, what was the legacy of the five missionaries, as well as the legacy of Elizabeth, Valerie, and Rachel Saint?
1: And maybe the, the best question of all, was it really worth it all? Tuano was a little clearing in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, where my daughter Valerie and I lived with a tribe of Indians called Aucas, or Waudani. We lived there for two years, two out of the 11 years that I was a missionary in Ecuador. And I've had a good many years since then to reflect On that time. There's an epilogue to my book, The Savage, My Kinsman, which tells the story of those two years. The epilogue was written many years after we left Ecuador. And I had had opportunity to think and ponder about the things that went wrong, our failures, our successes, ambiguities, and paradoxes. All of us as we look back over anything that we may have tried to do for God, anything that we may have tried to do for anybody, we will probably see paradoxes, contradictions, failures, some things we did right, some things we did wrong. Well I want to read a little bit from that epilogue because I had to do a lot of thinking for a long time to put it into words. I wrote one novel about it, trying to transform the lessons of those years into a fictional form. That novel was called No Graven Image. We left the Aukas after two years for several reasons. One of them was Valerie's education. She was having a very tough struggle concentrating on school books when f- small friends were always breathing down her neck and wanting to try out the crayons or the scissors, flipping through the picture books or begging her to go out swimming or hunting. It just got to be almost a physical impossibility. But then there was another reason for my leaving, and I can't go into that in any detail, but I can say this much, that there were some significant differences between my missionary colleague and me, and the conviction grew that the clearing in Tuano was really too small to accommodate two missionaries who were not in any strictly truthful sense really working together. One of us, it appeared, must go. My decision was a painful one. Two opposite trends in current Christian thinking are dangerous. One is the sheer triumphalism, which is the coin of much religious telecasting. Make it appealing. Make it cheap. Make it easy. Be a Christian and watch your difficulties dissolve. Obey God and everything you touch will turn to gold. The other is the expose out of a very muddy notion of something called equality and perhaps also out of an exaggerated fear of hero worship or cultism, springs an urge to spy out all weaknesses and inconsistencies and thereby discredit practically all human effort, especially when its intention is an unselfish one. We must recognize that as long as we are in these vile bodies, as Paul calls them, Our attempts to offer salvation and life will be mixed with corruption and death. Because of the earnestness and obedience of five men, the Alka Indians were finally reached. But the men died. The world noted their death with awe, with cynicism, or with indifference. Some Christians were aroused to missionary responsibility. Nine children were left fatherless. The example of their fathers set for them, however, remains a strong and a noble one. Much that was true appeared in Christian publications regarding this story. So did much that was false. I was reported to have lost my mind, become an alcoholic, produced an alka baby. Rachel was, quote, massacred, unquote, by one reporter, she told me in a recent letter. Mission boards struggled over the question of territory, credits, priorities, promotion. Most of these disagreements were worked out. The AUKAs heard the gospel. They also got polio. Some of them died from it. Others were crippled. Oil companies, more than a score, I'm told, have been able to enter what were formerly forbidden areas so that the Indians now have tools shortwave radios, hypodermic syringes and penicillin, helicopter pads, and hard hats. It's hardly necessary to point out that for every civilized blessing, there seem often to be ten curses. The hunting grounds on which the Indians depended for food are being systematically destroyed by the search for petroleum. How we long to point to something, anything, and say, this works. This is sure. But if it's something other than God himself, we are destined for disappointment. It's all going to cave in. There is only one ultimate guarantee. It is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Nothing in heaven or earth or hell can separate us from that. And because God is God and loves us, he will not allow us to rest anywhere but in that love. We run straight to him when other refuges fail. Our misconceptions are corrected in him, our failures redeemed, our sins cleansed, our griefs turned to joy. But first, the life of Jesus must be manifest in our mortal bodies. First, the drama must be played out through suffering, weakness, Failure, Death, and Resurrection. Jesus came not to make us comfortable by satisfying our whims and acceding to our wishes and our sometimes foolish hopes, but to cast fire on the earth, to bring a sword. The old prophet Simeon saw when Jesus was only eight days old that he was destined to cause the falling and the rising of many and to be a sign that will be spoken against. To Mary, he promised a sword will pierce your soul. It's always hard to keep a single eye, to look at things spiritually, especially when they're a mess. There are times, I confess, when the whole Tiwano scene strikes me as high comedy, though I haven't forgotten the tears. Imagine us, two such different women, different from each other, positively freakish to the Alcas, with a small blonde girl, going into that hidden clearing in the forest, moving into one of those houses which didn't amount to much more than an umbrella, eating whatever handouts we could get, I drew the line at ants and grubs, having powdered milk, salt, oatmeal, even chocolate and cheese sometimes, dropped to us by parachute, asking stupid questions, Why the string? How come you have holes in your earlobes, etc.? Putting ideas into their heads, for example, the wearing of clothes, the use of matches, aluminum pots, scissors, soap, depending upon them for everything and thus becoming three nuisances. High comedy, I call it. We must not proceed from our own notions of God's action. It will appear that he has not acted but we must look clearly and unflinchingly at what really happens and seek to understand it through the revelation of God in Christ. His life on earth had a most inauspicious beginning. There was the scandal of the virgin birth, humiliation of the stable, the announcement not to village officials but to uncouth shepherds. A baby was born, a savior and king, but hundreds of babies were murdered because of him. His public ministry, surely no tour of triumph, no thundering success story, led not to stardom, but to crucifixion. Things must be worked out according to a divine design and timetable. Sometimes the light rises excruciatingly slowly. I read that much to you from the epilogue of the savage, my kinsman, to remind us that discipleship always leads us way beyond our depth. The will of God is always bigger, always different, always far better than we could have ever dreamed. But in the meantime, we suffer, we sin, we fail, we're puzzled, we're bewildered. People are always asking me wherever I go, what has happened to the other four widows? Mary Lou McCulley has not remarried. She still lives near Seattle. She has three sons, all of them married. She has four grandchildren. Olive Fleming married Walter Liefeld, a professor at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois. They have three children, one of whom is married to a pastor. Barbara Udarian has recently returned to the States from Ecuador. She's been there up until a year or so ago. She's been living in Kansas City. She represents the Gospel Missionary Union. And she will be moving to Florida soon, I believe. She's got two children, both of them married. Her daughter, Beth, has four children. Marge Saint married Abe Vanderpoy, former president of the World Radio Missionary Fellowship. They have been with Back to the Bible in Lincoln, Nebraska. They do a great deal of traveling, still representing HCJB.
0: Gateway to Joy, 132 Reflections on Life in Ecuador. We're going to talk about what series is next uh, after this extended one. The next one will be much shorter. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. First, though. Let's hear from uh, the 1956 Memorial Service. Now, we've had many years to consider what happened there in Ecuador. What were they thinking just days after the death of these five missionaries?
2: A memorial service to the five missionary martyrs who gave their lives for Christ and his gospel just one week ago seeking to reach the savage Auca Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. That out of this apparent tragedy is coming a wonderful note of victory. On the shores of that little river that few of us have ever seen, there has been left the remains of this small missionary aviation plane nearby the common grave in which our fallen comrades have been buried. No greater monument could ever be erected by any government or any group of men than the simple testimony that that plane, stripped of its fabric and yet still standing there, shall give as long as it lasts and as long as that river flows. To try to evaluate what these men have done in human terms is indeed difficult. To think of this martyrdom of five valiant men on a material basis is indeed absurd. Even to put this sacrifice of supreme devotion on the level of altruism or humanitarianism simply doesn't satisfy our hearts. There must be something higher, something more noble, something more glorious, and indeed there is, as you've already heard mentioned previously. There is only one right and satisfying explanation for what happened out there in Operation Auca. Just one week ago, it is on the high spiritual elevation of love of Christ and of his gospel more than the love of self. In this is the lesson that shall be ours and the world's, as long as the names of these five men shall live in our memories. The apostle Paul was a man of this stripe, and he wrote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I am ready to be offered.
0: That's from the 1956 Memorial Service from HCJB. Well, as I mentioned, we've wrapped up this series on Elizabeth's time in Ecuador and the sacrifice of the five missionaries, including her husband Jim. So, what's next? 10 Gateway to Joy programs on how to simplify your life. I think the idea was that this would be a summary of what Elizabeth had been talking about all these years on Gateway to Joy. So, don't miss it, it'll be a five week series. Acceptance and attitude, waiting and action, giving thanks, the priority of sacrifice, and examine your possibilities. So don't miss this uh, five week series, 10 Gateway to Joy programs in all. And as usual, we'll have some thoughts from family and friends about their experiences and their appreciation for Elizabeth and her legacy. Well, let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, uh, along with you as you jog, maybe, wherever we found you today. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. That's elizabethelliot.org. Well, as we hear the music of John Hansen, and until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms.